All right, this evening we are going to press on in the whole category, the numbers, the category of trying to uh, present truth or convince men of truth in a subjective world, communicating truth. And again, we talked about what we're up against a little bit. Uh, we talked about it quite a bit, actually. Uh, we also talked about uh, the use of rash with reasoning, of logic, things like that. We talked last week a bit about the using of apologetics. And again, both of those, we came really from the perspective of creation uh, and the concept of men thinking. Of course, that's the challenge because men are expected or invited or trained to think. And yes, your mind is like any other part of your body. If you don't train it, it gets what? Weak, flabby. What else do I want to say? <laughs> yeah, squishy-brained. So, if you want to enhance your brain, now, we're not talking about IQ. IQ is the capacity that you have, that you're normally born with. Um, and some people have higher IQ some, that they're starting. So they have, and, and you might say, well, only people with high IQ need to exercise the brain. Not true. Um, they need to challenge their brains just as much as people with lower IQ need to challenge their brains. Um, every brain needs that kind of work to uh, be productive, to be strong. And again, um, we're not talking about you, know, you have to be brilliant to do this stuff. And in fact, we're going to see that from Christ's teaching, it's pretty elementary. It is, doesn't take a high IQ to achieve good rationality. And in fact, sometimes uh, you'll find people supposedly not as smart coming up with some brilliant answers and solve some things that the smart people couldn't because they complicated it too much. And so uh, do not confuse smartness with having all the answers and don't confuse that with wisdom. Jesus Christ's teaching was acceptable to many on every level, all people on every level, and so we want to similarly encourage you to use your brain. How do you exercise your brain? Well, it's like any other muscle. First, you've got to feed it the right food. Yes, I talked about your physical diet. But you're also your mental diet. Not only what you eat, but what are you feeding your brain in terms of mental food? Okay, and I talked about the fact that television is not mental food. If you're watching video, it, unless uh, you're doing a lot of reading, um, I, I enjoy some foreign films, so I have to read the film. Uh, you're going, but even then I recognize it's, I'm really following the storyline, uh, even though I have to read the, the uh, dialogue that's going on. But we're just talking about flat-out reading, and I have to do a lot of reading online right now. I don't like it, but I do it. Uh, and so reading is your food, what, your, what goes through your eye gate, largely, your ear gate as well, but mostly your eye gate, um, is the food for your brain. And that's why Psalmist says, Lord, I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes, because if I give that some, my brain to work on, then I'm not really exercising it. And so the exercise of the brain is a very important element. What are you feeding it? What are you putting in there for it to work on? And... Uh, I've, these are the disciplines of life. And you could just say, oh, I'm not a smart person, so I can't do that, and that's just not true. It just means that you still need that food, and you, can, you are still capable of learning. Okay? Ambrose is capable of learning, and he's learning very quickly. All right? uh, as soon as we say, I can't learn, uh, which is calling someone stupid, that's different than ignorant. Ignorant means that I haven't learned it. Ignorant, stupid means I can't learn it. I'm too stupid for that. Not true. Generally speaking, not true. It's about exercising. So we want to be well-conditioned brains, which means you need to feed your brains well. Not only proper nutrition, but you also need to give it something to work on. And breadth is what we talked about last week, that we should have a breadth of knowledge. Now, does that mean that sometimes while you're reading, you need a dictionary nearby? Sure it does. Okay, when I was younger, I used the dictionary a lot. In fact, I used to read the dictionary. I know that's weird. Okay, shouldn't have said that. All right. Huh? Yeah, because I, I don't like being 
ignorant in certain areas. Other areas, I choose to be ignorant. I really choose to be ignorant about some things because I just don't want to waste my time on it. There's not, it wouldn't waste my time, but I just don't have an interest in it. And so I choose that. And I tell people I'm ignorant in that area. Uh, and what that doesn't, it doesn't mean I don't know anything about it. It's just that I choose not to be an expert at that. I'm just not going to employ my brain for that because I'm using it for so many other things that I don't need to add that on. And so I'd rather have other people that enjoy that to be well-educated on that. I still have some knowledge in that area to converse with them and to engage them, but not to do the work they do. Big difference between those. So we're going to exercise our brains. We're going to feed it properly um, with good material. And good material is, is truthful, factual information. Okay, your brain works off of information. So we talk about as a computer, and the old adage is garbage in, garbage out. Right? If we put garbage in to that computer, we're going to get garbage out, which is what most science does today. They put garbage in, and they get garbage conclusions because they tweak and commit fraud with the inputs. Okay, so they're not doing true science anymore because they have an expected outcome and they tweak the inputs. And that's not just the pharmacists, that's many other categories of science aren't doing real science because of that. But we know that garbage in means garbage out. And so we don't want to be in that condition. We want to put some good information in. That doesn't necessarily mean that it is, has to all be non-fictional. Um, there's some good fiction out there that challenges you to think and things like that. And I'm okay with you, but if that's all you saturate your mind with, then I'm going to have some issues with you. So I encourage people to read broadly, read, I mean, it's really hard to read manuals, unless you can't sleep. That's a really good time to read manuals, um, whether it be for your job or for how things work, um, especially if they're written by Chinese people that interpret it into English, because those things are all over the place. It's kind of hilarious to read. Um, but we need to have good input. And God's word, of course, is your best input. So you should meditate on these things. And Philippians tells you whatsoever things are, and it gives a list, right? That we should be meditating on. That's a, an exercise of the brain to meditate. And so meditation on truth, on what is pure, good, just, these things are worthwhile. Uh, what does the Bible say about your imagination, which is also credited from coming from your intellect? It's evil all the day long. So when someone says, oh, my favorite thing is a daydream, I'm just like, what a waste. What a waste. Daydreaming is wasteful use of your mind because it leads nowhere, it gets nowhere, it accomplishes nothing. It doesn't even stimulate your brain to think well. It just wanders. So the Bible says the imagination of man is evil all the days, all his days. Now, you mean I'm not, you just said nonfiction is okay. Some of it is, some of it's garbage, um, much like some science today is garbage. Uh, but when it stimulates us to consider, and that's why allegories are good nonfictions, because they usually have a lot of message behind all their imagery um, that I do read. And so, yes, I have read. C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy. Am I? That's complete fantasy, okay? Completely. All right, there's no life on Venus, Mars, or anywhere else um, because they're just stars. And so when we, wandering stars, hence the word planets. So when we look at this, it's, it, we're challenging our mind. And I want to just encourage you that you can't expect something of others that you don't demand of yourself. If you want others' brains to be stimulated, you should be stimulating your own brain. Okay, and so that's by the engagement of fact and meditation. Now, if meditation is good on truth, meditate on what is good, just, virtuous, all those things, and create and imagination is evil, wandering mind is evil in God's sight. Uh, is there something in between that? Yes, it's called creativity. What is the difference between creativity and imagination? reality. Okay? Creativity is a biblical concept, and that is that we take the circumstances and situation around us, and we employ them to develop something new or different or whatever, useful. 
That's creativity. Creativity deals with reality. And so, you know, I can look at something, and probably one of the persons that I appreciate his creativity more than anything was, um, and now he's in glory, uh, was Dick Fry. He would sit there, and he'd go through his junkyard, backyard, and he'd pull this stuff out, pull this stuff out, and pretty soon he had something pretty cool. Uh, some of those things I still use. We use every day. These carts are from his creativity of junk that he had around his house. And so our chair carts. And creativity is something we should applaud because it's the exercise of our brain in the midst of reality about how to get these things together to make something, whether it's a, a chair cart or, or a skyscraper that we're going to use this to br- produce something of value and of use. And so I applaud and encourage creativity. It stays in the realm of reality. Okay, how can I take what I have and make this that I can use, need, or will benefit society somehow? Okay, so I'm not a downer on you using, I know some people use the term imagination to refer to that, but that is the wrong term. Imagination is a wandering mind, and that is not a discipline that God's word encourages. It is something that Eastern mysticism encourages. Just hum, get your tone, and just let your brain free. Just let loose. Think of nothing. Well, that's exactly how Satan comes in. So we need to be disciplined in our mind if we're going to engage others. Now, so we've moved along through those and apologetics, reasoning, and I want to move into another category for our last category. I thought I would finish it all tonight, but that's not going to happen. So I'm going to break it up into two. And so um, we're going to talk about your testimony as introducing truth to people. And I want to share this from a perspective of Paul. Um, this is not something that everyone can use. And that's why I hesitated doing this but I really concluded that I wanted to because we need to benefit from those who can use this tool. We have in history um, those who were the opponents, not just passively disinterested or against Christianity and truth passively because they just didn't develop it or they got hurt experientially by those who claim to have the truth and so therefore they are passionately against it but for no real reason of that they know of within the context of what is the content of truth it's all experiential in the relationship with those who represented truth does that make any sense to any of you some of you are looking like what is he talking about okay you're gonna have people who are against christianity just because they had a bad experience right Oh, I went to church and they treated me this way and that way as if they were the innocent ones always. They're always the innocent ones and they got maltreated. And so they have a bad taste in their mouth. Well, my parents were very religious. They were too strict on me and now blah, blah, blah. And so that's all experiential. That has nothing to do with the content of the truth of God's word, correct? They had a bad experience. It may have something to do with their unwillingness to surrender their uh, lifestyle or their ego to the content of truth. That can be there. But generally, the way they communicate that is that they didn't have a good relationship and they got burned. And so for them, we're not talking about that. That's a different approach. We're talking about those who are antagonistic, that have some knowledge of the truth, or maybe extensive knowledge of the truth, and are actively oppositional to it. Okay, most of the professors at UNM would fall into that category. Now, I'm not saying that all of them do. Some of them are downright ignorant themselves of what's in the Bible. They only know what they've been taught. But many of them are are actively antagonistic to biblical principles. When we were foster parents, we found that most of the people involved in CYFD and their other agencies over the foster care system um, were actively antagonistic to biblical truth, even though most of their foster parents were Christians. Because Christians have the right heart to do that work well. They're usually not doing it for the money. But the, the, but the CYD, the government, was actively oppositional, antagonistic to it. Most of your scientific community is actively antagonistic against 
the truth of God's word. They want to disprove it or disassociate from it. And so we're talking about those kind of people. And so we have individuals who are actively against God's word who then had an opportunity through either a single event or over a course of time to become brutally honest and to actually investigate fully that truth from an antagonist view. So, and I listed earlier Josh McDowell. Uh, I've talked about him now two or three weeks in a row. That he came to God's word saying, I'm going to prove it wrong once and for all for everybody. And then I'm going to be the hero of every atheist. That's what he came to God's word to do. But he came honestly. He was an honest scholar that came and says, I'm going to investigate it honestly. And in the end, he became a believer. And now he's a great advocate for apologetics. And he's written multiple, multiple books that are very valuable to engaging modern man with it. And there are many examples like that. One of those examples is given to us in the Bible, and his name was Saul of Tarsus. And he was actively antagonistic to Christianity. Would you agree with that? Okay, that assessment. Uh, did he know the Bible? Oh, he knew it really, really well. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was taught on the feet of Gamaliel. He knew God's word. He was a student of it all his days. He was setting himself up to be one of the primary religious leaders in Jerusalem. That's why he was there, not in Tarsus. He was there to get trained by the best of the best with an expectation he was the next generation who would be the best. And the evidence is that, that coming out of Jerusalem, he was the number one young Pharisee in Jerusalem. Okay? I mean, this guy was brilliant. He was well he knew the scriptures well, and he hated Jesus and Christians. And hence, he wanted to hunt them down. And then you have something wondrous happening. You know the event, the road to Damascus, where he is confronted with Jesus, and he's humbled, and he is made to confront the one that he has been assaulting, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. And so he is confronted there on the road to Damascus. That, that is an extended period. There is not a single event there described. That's where it initiated and it persisted all the way to the rest of the trip to Damascus. We're not sure how close he was to Damascus when that happened. The rest of the trip he had to be led to Damascus. He's sitting there as a blind man in Damascus waiting. For a guy like that, being blind and you're just waiting... And then this guy has to show up, and you don't know anything about him other than he's part of the group that you came there to destroy. And now he's going to start talking to you about the one you met on the road. And so he obviously has insight that you never had. He has divine access to information you didn't have. And he's going to talk about you receiving your sight. That testimony is a very powerful testimony. To go from being an intellectual antagonist to Christianity to being an advocate of Christianity, those kinds of individuals God raises up in every generation. And you know some of them. Now, do they get all their theological T's crossed and I's dotted like Paul? Not necessarily. I wouldn't necessarily invite them to preach here but I see their influence in the realm of philosophy and of those that are thinkers, that are engaging this, and other antagonists. The problem that we have of getting them from antagonism to advocacy generally is we can't get them to be honest investigators. So what we are trying to do in our evangelism with this class is to bring them, this class of people, is to bring them to being honest investigators. Why? Because the truth endures investigation. If we are teaching the truth, it will stand up to every honest investigation. We are not afraid of people investigating God's word. I am not afraid of that. I come with, it with as much malice as you want to it, as long as you're honest that you're coming with much malice. I mean, 
Josh McDowell was at least honest. I came to prove it wrong. But he was an honest investigator. He didn't want to do it in a way that Christians could squirm out of it by saying you were dishonest in your investigation. He wanted to have an honest, he thought he could honestly disprove Christianity with enough focused investigation. And that's all we need. And so we are not afraid. You should never be afraid of people wanting to investigate and even come from it from a negative perspective to God's Word. We're going to talk about God's Word next week with that. And in fact, we should invite that. Well, why don't you look at it? Why don't, and we give them the passages. Why don't you tear this apart? You find the holes. You find the problems. And it's interesting because when you engage, there's a Behold Israel and other ministries in, the, in, in Israel today, and the rabbis are just getting taken to task left and right because they're active antagonists, but they're not honest investigators. So they come and say, here's an example. The New Testament says 75 people entered, but in the Old Testament it says 70 people entered Egypt. Is that true? Is the New Testament ignorant of the Old Testament? Was it 75 or 70? This seems like a factual thing that is wrong. Is it true? That's one of their accusations against Christianity. Is you, just on a superficial, factual basis, we could tell you you're wrong. Well, it depends. How honest are they with their Old Testament? Because the fact is, is that you end up with a kind of a different number if you go to the Septuagint instead of the Masoretic text. You have two different numbers. And suddenly, and by the way, the Masoretic text didn't exist in Jesus' day. Or 100 years later, or 200 years later, or 500 years later. 1000 AD, Masoretic text. So they're, and the Septuagint is coming out of the ancient Hebrew that we hardly have anything of. And in fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls say, guess what? 75. It agrees with the New Testament. But they aren't honest. They know that, but they're not honest about it with people. So we want to invite people to honest investigation of God's Word because their testimony, if they're honestly willing to study God's Word and investigate, even with the intent of proving it wrong or to justify themselves in not following it, I'm okay with that as long as they're willing to honestly study it and be honest scholars. So Paul was confronted by God instead of man. Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. He had the engagement with Ananias in Damascus, and now he has a very powerful testimony. I, who was once the enemy of the cross, am now a servant of the cross. And that is a powerful testimony. Now you might say, well, I was never that kind of enemy of the cross. But there is still another way we can share in that testimony. And this is the manner that we want to talk about. How much are you willing in your testimony to endure for the truth? That's a personal question. How much are you willing to endure for the truth? That is, what are you willing to have done to you and still stand and say, no, this is the truth and I will not waver because there, if I abandon this, there's nothing else. Because this is the truth. That is a testimony that the world still can't comprehend because they never encountered truth on that level. They might have factual data that they might say, no, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true, and might insist upon, but then to suffer for that. Okay? Now, I do this with my kids, and now I'm doing it with my grandkids. To make me happy, they are willing to compromise what they know to be true. Yes, I do that to my kids and my grandkids. How do you pronounce the word A-P-P-L-E? Apple. Come on, that's not hard. Okay, but not in my house. My grandkids are not allowed to call it that. If they call it that, they don't get anything. What do they have to call it, Felicity? 
What is the juice you like so well? What's it called in my house? Apple juice. Okay, and they appease me because they want apple juice. It's not the correct pronunciation, but it's a fun one that we use, and so they use it in my house. They're not allowed to use it at their house. I've seen their parents even get mad at them for calling it apple juice. <laughs> but, but they know they have to do it at Pap Pap's house. And so um, commitment to factual data is not life-threatening. Most people are not willing to, to risk their life over factual data. We'll just say, whatever. Okay, if you want to believe that, that's fine. If your factual data um, and mine don't agree, we'll usually just say, okay. Um, we're not talking about factual data. We're talking about a truth, and people don't understand you're willing to die for your truth. If we're willing to suffer the loss of my job, the loss of my family, the loss of rela other relationships, my, my uh, foods, my housing, my freedom, uh, and even my life itself, on uh, simply for the truth. That concept blows their mind, and it is one of the strongest evidences. It's not the, the best evidence, but it's a strong evidence that you have a good handle on the truth, and it will attract them and ask the question. They'll either conclude one of two things. They really believe this is true, and maybe it is, and they have to investigate it, or they'll conclude they are really brainwashed. Right? And that's how Satan will attack that and say, oh, you're just brainwashed and, and you're crazy. You know, to let that, to die over this. I was like, no, it's truth. And the testimony throughout church history has been those who are martyred died for something that others would never die for. They are more than willing to capitulate. Because nations have been conquering other nations for many, many years. Did you know that? It's nothing new. And when they do so, an interesting thing happens. When one nation conquers another nation, the residents of that nation capitulate and start worshiping the God of the conquering nation. They simply take on their terms, their, their, their names, and all of that. And so when the Greeks conquered, they would call the Greek gods, and the Romans conquered, they used the Romans' names. They were all the same God. We just changed the names, and we capitulated, and we had no problems. And so when the Persians, when the Babylonians, when the Greeks conquered all these various people groups, they all capitulated, because, except for one group. You know who that was? The Jews. Now, not all the Jews, some of them just capitulated. Men like uh, Josephus, who was considered a traitor by the Jews, um, who helped the Romans. So many of them, not, some of them capitulated, but, but the Jews were like, one, we have one God. And we have guys like Daniel standing up to that at the risk of their lives. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not just the theoretical risk of their life, the actual risk of their life, throwing into lion's dens, things like that. Joseph in prison, they just would not move. They wouldn't budge. Not because they were stubborn, not because they were foolish or, or, or brainwashed, but because they knew this to be true. Not just experientially, but existentially, they knew this was true. Well, Paul was one of those. And so he's going to jail over what he believes at the end of the book of Acts. And I wanted to turn and see his... Now he has several sermons in the book of Acts. So turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. We have several representations of this. And so um, we're gonna, in, in chapter 24, we're going to start there. Uh, we have one there, and then we have another one where he's before Felix. And then we have him before Agrippa. And so we have um, that in chapter 25. It's a lot longer, and I don't have time to get into that, but both of these are, I, I prefer the, Agrippa, the Felix one. Agrippa, what does he start with Agrippa? I know that you are more familiar with Jewish ways, but Felix wasn't. So let's see, how does he address somebody who isn't knowledgeable uh, about Judaism very much? And so let's start in verse 10 
of Acts 24, says, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, said, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. They neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So what has he done so far? Here's the facts presented in this court. Okay? So it's very obvious that he hasn't done any of the things they accused him of. He sets those aside right away, very short order. He doesn't go on, 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 on to defend his life. That's not what this is about. In just those handles, few verses, he's already addressed all of their accusations. Everything from now on is trying to introduce Felix to the truth. Let's see it. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. And so we've had this, 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 this statement. This is now a secondary statement. This is, I think, the second, right? He had one earlier. Yeah, 23, that was the Sanhedrin. And so um, we have this statement given to him, and he's like, uh, yes, I didn't do any of those things. And, so, and if there were any real accusers, at the end he talks about that. But right in the middle, he says, listen, this is all about the resurrection. He follows us all the way through to the end. I'm here to talk to you about the resurrection. And this I am so sure of. I am so committed to it that it is all I really want to talk about. Now, remember, when he was Athens reasoning with the philosophers, where did it end? The resurrection. The resurrection. Now, I would really, really challenge you. Are you willing to die for the truth of a resurrected Savior. Go to prison, lose your job over the truth. Of a re- oh, I believe Jesus was a good person, but this resurrection thing, I don't know. Can you prove it? You know, I actually had this conversation, <laughs> I told you about this, two doctors in Boston, um, and I was like, what do you need to be, what would you need to be, I would need to see it. I says, oh, does it need to be done every, does every generation need to see it? I say, you can't trust media, so you'd have to personally see this. Well, no, not every generation, but it has to be well recorded. I said, it was. And it says, oh, well, yeah, well. You see, once we broke through their honest statement, it was like, well, I would like to see that myself. Paul, did Paul see the resurrected Christ? He heard him. He saw a bright light. Doesn't say he saw the Lord. He had an encounter with the resurrected, but did he see Christ during the 40 days Christ walked after the resurrection? No. But he was that confident of it that he comes in, he says, listen, um, this is about the hope of the resurrection. It is one of the things that people are still enamored with and we and intellectually want to challenge that. You believe people rise from the dead. They would rather believe in reincarnation than the resurrection. Because Paul says even the just and the unjust will be resurrected, some to eternal life, some to, to damnation, to judgment. It implies that there is a God that you have to answer to for your whole life, whether you're dead or alive. That's what he's confronting Felix with. You think you're a judge? I believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Are you ready to answer to the God that you have to answer to? 
if the resurrection is real. And of course, he develops this extensively in the book of Corinthians, right? He spends several chapters defending the resurrection. And so he's inviting Felix, inviting these guys to consider the truth of the resurrection. Prove it wrong. He's not just trying to defend himself. He's trying to defend Christianity, saying these people are attacking me. That's an ad hominem. That's what that means, attack of the person, instead of the information. We have a lot of that going on today. I don't like what you said, so you're a jerk. You're this, you're that, you're that, you're that. And it's like, um, okay, but you still haven't addressed the problem. Well, they don't want to. And again, are we willing to have honest investigation? Invite people to honest investigation. Not, not um, argument, but honest investigation. Look into it yourself. Read this. If you're brave enough. If you're honest enough. Do honest investigation. And essentially, Paul's willing is putting us out there to have honest investigation. And then let's go to chapter 25. Oh, no, I, I skipped this portion. Let's go back to 24, sorry. Um, let's pick up verse 24. 24, 24. After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Did the challenge go unresponded to? No. This guy's talking about that Jesus is resurrected. Verse 25, Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, does that sound familiar? Same things that the Holy Spirit convicts you of? Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given by Paul. They might release him. There's some underlying things there as well. Uh, therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. For two years this went on. Now, we don't know what the end outcome was for him. We don't know what happened to Felix between now and his death. But boy, for two years he had access to this and he was engaging Paul about this resurrection and about judgment to come, because resurrection means that there must be some measure -er on the other side of the resurrection. And so there's a judgment to come. Self-control righteousness. Does that sound like the first part of our evangelism thing? Right? Confronting people with their sin. And that's what Paul does. But it's this invitation for Felix. Will you be an honest investigator into the resurrection? And so he brings his Jewish wife along, and they, Drusilla, and they encounter him, and they're willing to engage him, and look where he talks. He leads them right down that road, and the result of resurrection is judgment to come. Because it's both the just and the unjust that get resurrected. Do you think Paul ever says, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting damnation? Yeah, because that's what he said all other places. So we have the resurrection of both, and... We're excited about it, but we, don't, we forget that the people who don't know Jesus are Savior. The resurrection is something to, to look forward to. You're just moving from Sheol to the lake of fire. Right? You're moving from Hades to the lake of fire. That's about it for you. <coughs> With the great white throne in between. And so we have him reasoning about this. And this is what we should be engaging to. And remember... Um, Paul's willing to die for this. And that has, that has um, captured Felix. This man is willing to die for the hope of the resurrection. And it kind of reminds me, hopefully, of what Pilate said. What is truth? Remember, we had that a couple weeks ago. What is truth? Here, Felix is, is, is just taken by this, but don't, don't forget that this kind of honest investigation takes time. And Paul had this opportunity. It takes time. You can't expect this kind of turnaround intellectually from antagonist to uh, advocate without investigation. I don't really 
I don't remember how long it took Josh McDowell to study that out. I, I think it was well over a year that he did that. I'm not, I can't be positive about that. Um, that he was investigating it, trying to disprove it, and got frustrated and frustrated and frustrated. And finally, he's like, this is, this is truth. And if it's truth, after honest investigation, I need to submit to it. And that's where we want people. It might take a long time for that to occur. And so... Uh, Felix is ready to kind of let him loose, um, but we have this encounter with Festus. Um, but I want to read what he said to Festus in verse 25. It's very brief. Verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you very well know. It's been two years. They know what's going on. For if I'm an offender or have committed anything deserving of, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things which men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. And now he's going to say, uh, well, you have to go to Caesar then. Uh, again, I'm willing to die for that. I'm willing to, if I've done something wrong, kill me because I'm, I'm an offender and I'm a criminal and I deserve the punishment the criminal receives. By the way, that is the proper response if you have done civil disobedience. It's to accept the penalty of that gladly. I'm willing to die. I can't do this because of my conscience. I understand you made it illegal. Do what you got to do to me. I'm not repentant. I'm not sorry for it. I, I would do it all again because I would need to because of the truth. And Paul says, I'm willing to die if I did anything wrong, but I didn't do anything wrong, so I'm going to go to Caesar. Of course, God already revealed to him that he would go to Rome. This is the avenue by which he would go to Rome. But I want you to notice that he is confronting them and saying that he's willing to die if he had done something wrong, if he, if he was truly a criminal. I don't object to dying. Well, let's go on to the next statement, and with this we'll close. Oh, man, my time is gone. Again, he reiterates um, all of the information uh, and we're going to, or the accusations, I'm sorry, the accusations. Uh, and Agrippa says, I want to hear about him in verse 22. And so the next day they do this all very fancily. And then finally, uh, in verse chapter 26, we have the response uh, where Paul is permitted to speak for yourself. And he begins this engagement, gives the history of Israel. Uh, but look at the testimony, pick up in verse 11. And I, uh, I punished them often in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter. And he describes his conversion experience. Let's jump down to verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was obedient. I'm a being what I know to be true. Jesus Christ is risen. What accounts for this? What accounts for you going from being the antagonist, the enemy of, the, of Christians, to being an advocate of Christianity, a missionary of Christianity? What accounts for this? Paul says, listen, I had an encounter with Jesus Christ resurrected, and I'm going to be obedient to that. You see, people have to deal with that testimony. That should be our testimony. And the question is, what accounts for it? That you went from an antagonist to an advocate. What happened in between? And that's your testimony. What transpired there in your mind, in your heart, uh, how did God get your attention? And that matters in your sharing of the gospel. But so does the whole idea of investigating truth, calling them to the resurrection of Jesus Christ again and again, and saying it demands obedience of me, and I will obey Jesus no matter what it costs me. And if that is not your position, then I want to challenge you that you are either immature in the faith or do not have faith. Not saving faith. What will it cost me? It'll, I don't care what it costs me. Because it's true. I've laid hold on the truth. And once you lay hold on the truth, you don't ever let go. Not 
real truth. We're not talking about subjective truth of what's right for me, right? No. When you hold on to the real truth, there's nothing that measures up to it. And so you make this statement, well, that's true for you, and I just kind of smile at you and pray for you because you have no concept of what I'm talking about. Because what's true for me is true for all men. There's going to be a resurrection of the just and the judge, the unjust. They're going to have to answer before a holy, holy, holy God. And there will be no excuses. That's true. I haven't experienced it, but I know it to be true. Because he who said it is faithful, and everything his word that I have seen is true. He is, he is consistent. Once you latch on to the truth, it's real. It should be impossible for men to drive a wedge between you, but it does happen. Paul himself said so, didn't he? What did he say? What was he able to do when he was an enemy of the cross? By his own word. I compelled them to blaspheme. Do you see that? That's in chapter 26, verse 11. I compelled them to blaspheme. When push came to shove, not everyone called a Christian up withheld, stood against Paul. Some capitulated and blasphemed Jesus' name. They put the pressure on and they blasphemed rather than pay a price. Okay? And every time that happens, who does it help? Does it help the gospel? Does it help reach a guy like Paul? Saul? Does it help reach a guy like Saul? No. It just kept reassuring him that he was right because these people don't have the truth or they wouldn't blaspheme. But rather the testimony of Peter when he was in there saying, well, you want to beat us, go ahead. We're going to obey God rather than man. That is disconcerting to those who don't know the truth. These people really have latched on to something that is true and they will not abandon it. And you cannot compel them to abandon it. And that needs to be our testimony when we're trying to engage with the truth. It has to be real to you. It has to be valuable to you enough that you are not willing to compromise it just to be liked. I mean, I can't believe how many times people compromise biblical truth just so people like them, just so they get a little bit farther along in their job, just so they can uh, make their lives a little easier. They're willing to compromise God's word and its truth. And it's like, and then you want to, that's the most selfish thing you could do because now those people that you've compromised your position in front of to gain their favor are now going to have to be resurrected to judgment because you couldn't stand for truth in front of them. We're inviting people to investigate, honest investigation of God's word, of our testimony. Look at me. Paul says, look at me, examine me. This is who I was, this is who I am. I'm not going to be disobedient to my heavenly vision. And we, neither should we. That inconsistency ruins your opportunity to be a witness. Many people were compelled to blaspheme. and The, the name they're blaspheming is Jesus's. Because Paul would not, or Saul would not have wanted them to blaspheme the name of the Lord but rather the name of Jesus. And so I'm not going to pretend that even this small group, that everyone is ready to do that, to pay the price to stand for truth, but that testimony is powerful. It is compelling for people, and it will and it has historically moved people from antagonist to honest investigator, and that's all we need. All you need that. From antagonist to honest investigator, and there's sufficiency in the truth itself, you don't need to help it, that it will impact their life to a point of decision-making. They may still reject it, 
But if they reject it after honest investigation, they will always reject it. Because along with honest investigation comes the work of the Holy Spirit and to convict if they don't, if they resist the convicting of the Holy Spirit, then they, are, they have chosen to be lost. Uh, but all we need is for them to come to honest investigation because the truth withstands that easily. And if your testimony is, I'm willing to die for this, I'm willing to suffer the loss of everything for this truth, including my family, I'm willing to lose everything, my job, everything, my very life, if necessary, um, that is a compelling invitation for people to say, what is it that they're willing to die for? That has always been the case through church history. That's why wherever persecution and martyrdom went, the gospel flourished. Great revivals came on the heels of great persecutions. And maybe the reason we don't have revivals today is because we're not willing to stand up and say, this is truth, and I will not compromise it for anything. And so it doesn't, so there's no attention grabber to invite people honest investigation of what you believe. Because as far as they're concerned, you're as wishy-washy as the next guy or gal. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the testimony of so many who have been your enemy and have become your family through this uh, various workings of God. Lord, we pray that we might be that testimony of those who will suffer any loss to stand fast on the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we know that that can happen in immediate homes, in the workplace, in society at large. Lord, help us to be willing to endure all things that some might receive you as Savior and Lord. That the message of the cross might go forth with clarity from our testimony. That we might have opportunities to defend not just ourselves, but more importantly, our faith and the truth upon which it is firmly planted. And Lord, where that is lacking, where our faith is not strong, you might Help us to increase our knowledge of you, of your word, that we might increase in our faith, that we might have that clarity of testimony that attracts others to hear more of what we believe so strongly in. Lord, we know this is being measured and being examined, being observed over not just days, but years. So help us to be consistent in our testimony. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.